Chapter twenty six, part five of A Short History of Scotland by Andrew Lang. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter twenty six, The Restoration, part five. The Covenanters were now effectually put down, though Rennick was not taken and hanged till sixteen eighty eight. The preachers were anxious for peace and quiet, and were bitterly hostile to Rennick. The covenant was a dead letter as far as power to do mischief was concerned. It was not persecution of the Kirk, but demand for toleration of Catholics, and a manifest desire to restore the Church, that in two years lost James his kingdoms. On April twenty ninth, 1686, James's message to the Scots Parliament asked toleration for our innocent subjects, the Catholics. He had substituted Perth's brother, now entitled Earl of Melfort, for Queensbury. Perth was now Chancellor. Both men had adopted their king's religion, and the infamous Melfort can hardly be supposed to have done so honestly. Their families lost all in the event except their faith. With the request for toleration, James sent promises of free trade with England, and he asked for no supplies. Perth had introduced Catholic vestments and furnishings in Holyrood Chapel, which provoked a no-popery riot. Parliament would not permit toleration. James removed many of the council and filled their places with Catholics. Sir George Mackenzie's conscience derled. He refused to vote for toleration, and he lost the Lord Advocateship, being superseded by Sir James Dalrymple, an old covenanting opponent of Claverhouse in Galloway. In August, James, by prerogative, did what the estates would not do, and he deprived the Archbishop of Glasgow and the Bishop of Dunkeld of their sees. Though a Catholic, he was the king-pope of a Protestant church. In a decree of July, 1687, he extended toleration to the Kirk, and a meeting of preachers at Edinburgh expressed a deep sense of Your Majesty's gracious and surprising favor. The Kirk was indeed broken, and when the revolution came, was at last ready for a compromise from which the covenants were omitted. On February 17, 1688, Mr. Rennick was hanged at Edinburgh. He had been prosecuted by Dalrymple. On the same day, Mackenzie superseded Dalrymple as Lord Advocate. After the birth of the White Rose Prince of Wales, June 10, 1688, Scotland, like England, apprehended that a Catholic king would be followed by a Catholic son. The various contradictory lies about the child's birth flourished, all the more because James ventured to select the magistrates of the royal boroughs. It became certain that the Prince of Orange would invade, and Melford madly withdrew the regular troops, with Claverhouse, now Viscount Dundee, to aid in resisting William in England, though Balcares proposed a safer way of holding down the English northern counties by volunteers, the Highland clans, and new levies. Thus the Privy Council in Scotland were left at the mercy of the populace. Of the Scottish army in England all were disbanded when James fled to France, except a handful of cavalry, whom Dundee kept with him. Perth fled from Edinburgh, but was taken and held a prisoner for four years, the town train band, with the mob and some Cameronians, took Holyrood, slaying such of the guards as they did not imprison. Many died of their wounds and hunger. The chapel and Catholic houses were sacked, and gangs of the armed Cameronian societies went about in the southwest, rabbling, robbing, and driving away ministers of the Episcopalian sort. Athol was in power in Edinburgh. In London, where James's Scots friends met, the Duke of Hamilton was made President of Council and power was left till the assembling of a covenant at Edinburgh, March 1689, in the hands of William. In Edinburgh Castle the wavering Duke of Gordon was induced to remain by Dundee and Balcares. 
while Dundee proposed to call a Jacobite convention in Stirling. Melfort induced James to send a letter contrary to the desires of his party. Athol, who had promised to join them, broke away. The life of Dundee was threatened by the fanatics, and on March 18th, seeing his party headless and heartless, Dundee rode north, going wherever might lead him the shade of Montrose. Mackay now brought to Edinburgh regiments from Holland, which overawed the Jacobites, and he secured for William the key of the north, the castle of Stirling. With Hamilton as president, the convention, with only four adverse votes, declared against James and his son, and Hamilton, April 3rd, proclaimed at the cross of the reign of William and Mary. The claim of rights was passed and declared episcopacy intolerable. Balcares was thrown into prison. On May 11th, William took the coronation oath for Scotland, merely protesting that he would not root out heretics as the oath enjoined. This was the end of an old Zang, the end of the Stuart dynasty, and of the equally divine rights of kings and of preachers. In a sketch it is impossible to convey any idea of the sufferings of Scotland, at least of covenanting Scotland, under the Restoration. There was contest, unrest, and dragoonings, and the quartering of a brutal and licentious soldiery on suspected persons. Law, especially since 1679, had been twisted for the conviction of persons whom the administration desired to rob. The greed and corruption of the rulers, from Lauderdale, his wife and his brother Haltoun, to Perth and his brother, the Earl of Melfort, whose very title was the name of an unjustly confiscated estate, is almost inconceivable. Few of the foremost men in power, except Sir George Mackenzie and Claverhouse, were free from personal profligacy of every sort. Claverhouse has left on record his aversion to severities against the peasantry. He was for prosecuting such gentry as the Dalrymples. As constable of Dundee he refused to inflict capital punishment on petty officers, and Mackenzie went as far as he dared in opposing the ferocities of the Inquisition of Witches. But in cases of alleged treason, Mackenzie knew no mercy. Torture, legal in Scotland, was used with barbarism unprecedented there after each plot or rising, to extract secrets which, save in one or two cases like that of Carstairs, the victims did not possess. They were peasants, preachers, and a few country gentlemen. The nobles had no inclination to suffer for the cause of the covenants. The covenants continued to be the idols of the societies of the Cameronians, and of many preachers who were no longer inclined to die for those documents, the expression of such strange doctrines, the cause of so many sorrows and of so many martyrdoms. However little we may sympathize with the doctrines, none the less the sufferers were idealists, and, no less than Montrose, preferred honor to life. With all its sins, the Restoration so far pulverized the pretensions which, since 1560, the preachers had made, that William of Orange was not obliged to renew the conflict with the spiritual sons of Knox and Andrew Melville. This fact is not so generally recognized as it might be. It is therefore proper to quote the corroborative opinion of the learned historiographer royal of Scotland, Professor Hume Brown. By concession and repression, the once mighty force of Scottish Presbyterianism had been broken. Most deadly of the weapons in the accomplishment of this result had been the three acts of indulgence, which had successfully cut so deep into the ranks of uniformity. In succumbing to the threats and promises of the government, the indulged ministers had undoubtedly compromised the fundamental principles of Presbyterianism. The compliance of these ministers was, in truth, the first and necessary step towards that religious and political compromise which the force of circumstances was gradually imposing on the Scottish people. 
and the example of the indulged ministers, who composed the great mass of the Presbyterian clergy, was of the most potent effect in substituting the idea of toleration, for that of the religious absolutism of Knox and Melville. It may be added that the pretensions of Knox and Melville, and all their followers, were no essential part of Presbyterial church government, but were merely the continuation or survival of the claims of apostolic authority, as enforced by such popes as Hildebrand, and such martyrs as St. Thomas of Canterbury. End of chapter 26, part 5. Read by Sibella Denton. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.